we're continuing our series of Teach Us to Pray this week, and we've been looking at the prayers of Jesus throughout the New Testament. And I was just thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if we could actually take a peek into each other's prayer life? Though mine would probably be pretty boring or repetitive some days, something like, Lord, help, or Lord, why, or, oh, Lord, have mercy, Um, kind of on repeat for some days. But other days, you would actually see the unfiltered and raw parts of me, and that would be uncomfortable for both of us. Um, But it's amazing to me that we do actually get to peek into Jesus's prayer life through the Word. And today, we're looking at chapter 17 in the Gospel of John. The entire chapter actually is a prayer and only recorded here in John. Um, Jesus is praying for himself, his disciples, and all of us. It's actually the longest of Jesus's recorded prayers. And if you guys would turn with me now to John 17, um, I am going to say we don't have to stand for the reading of the word today just because I am going to read the whole chapter. And, you know, if you really just want to, that's cool. Um, But we're going to read John 17. And it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth, in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Um, Clement of Alexandria, a Christian theologian and philosopher of the 5th century, who I'm sure you all know and love, because who doesn't love Clem? Um, He actually said that Jesus was acting as a high priest on the behalf of his people in this prayer. As you'll remember, the high priest is the one who would be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies at the temple once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement to burn incense and sprinkle animal blood and atone for his sins and for the sins of the people of Israel. Many people actually call this chapter, this prayer, the high priestly prayer, and Jesus prayed it not long before he was betrayed and arrested. Jesus knew death was coming, and still the majority of this prayer is for not himself, but for others. And I can't always say that that's true in my own prayer life. So often I'm focused on my needs and my wants and my desires, and that's legit. Don't get me wrong, like God wants to hear that, but we're also meant to spend time lifting up others in prayer, and Jesus gives us the best example of how to do that. In some translations, you'll actually see headings in John 17, like in the NIV or the CSB, but in others you won't, like the ESV. Um, The headings, though, if you have them, will likely say, Jesus prays to be glorified, Jesus prays for his disciples, and Jesus prays for all believers. And whether you have the headings or not, when you read through the chapter, you can see that there are distinct sections of this prayer. In the first five verses, we see Jesus praying for himself or about himself and his father. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for his disciples, for their unity and for their protection. And then in the final part of the chapter, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is praying for all believers, the ones who haven't even yet come to know him, that they would also be unified and continue to make him known. And that includes each of us. As one author and pastor put it, first Jesus looks upward as he magnifies the Father, then Jesus looks outward as he prays for the well-being and care of, of his disciples, and then Jesus looks forward as he prays for the unity and holiness of the future church. And we're going to go through each of these parts and dig in and see what the prayer of Jesus here has to teach us about how we should pray. So we're going to look upward, outward, and forward. First upward, if you'll look again with me at verses 1 through 5. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mentioned before that this part of the prayer is sometimes seen as Jesus praying for himself. But as New Testament scholar Leon Morris puts it, it is not a prayer for himself in the way that we would usually think about it. Since his glorification is to be seen in the cross, it is a prayer, rather, that the Father's will may be done in him. 
And Morris says, if we do talk about this as Jesus' prayer for himself, we should at least be clear that there is no self-seeking in it. Basically, it's not a selfish request. Jesus laid aside his glory to become human, to sacrifice himself for us. So he obviously, we know he has every right to ask for his glory to be returned, but he doesn't want his glory back just for his own sake. He desires to be glorified so that his father will be glorified. What does this teach us then about how we should pray? Well, this part of Jesus' prayer focuses on his relationship with his father. It would then lead me to think that maybe it tells us something about our relationship with the father. Notice how Jesus is talking to his father here. It's, it's by no means irreverent, but it is conversational. It's intimate. And because of Jesus, we also get to enjoy intimacy with our heavenly father. We don't have to say any magic words to get God to listen to us. We don't have to do any little jig. Um, We can just talk to him. It's actually something we've been teaching our kids in their version of this Teach Us to Pray series, that prayer is just talking to God. I don't know about you, but that elicits something in me. Wonder, I think, that what a privilege it is that we get to come before the Father. It's something that inspires gratitude and humility and reverence. And with that inspiration, would we then lift up praise and honor to his name, thanking him for the gift of being able to come before him and speak to him, our creator. In this section, Jesus actually says glorify, glorified, or glory multiple times. And I learned some pretty neat stuff about the word glory, so you know I have to share it with you. Um, The Greek word for glory here is doxa, which is actually where we get doxology. And as it relates to God, it recognizes the essential nature of his godness, that it gives him importance and weight. And when we glorify someone... We display their dignity, their worth, their importance, and their fame. So then, part of our prayer time, and for me, it's usually at the beginning of my prayer time, but should be spent glorifying the name of God, lifting our eyes upward to heaven and praising him. And I don't have a formula to give you for this, uh, but instead, just some examples from my own prayer time. For me, sometimes it means singing, worship to him. Other times I recite the names of God or whichever ones come to mind at least, like Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, Savior, Messiah, Creator, Jehovah, the list goes on and on, of course. Or it might be just praising and thanking him for past miracles and blessings in my own life. However it looks to you or for you or whatever words you use, what matters is praising and honoring and glorifying his name. After looking upward in his prayer, Jesus looks outward. So let's look again at verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So, a lot to unpack in that part. Um, So I'm going to break it down into three pieces here. Joy, the world, and sanctification. As Jesus continues praying, looking outward, he prays here for his followers. In verse 8, we see that he gave them the word that the Father gave to him, and they received it and believed it. And he's clear that he's not praying for the whole world here, but for those who are with him, following him. And Jesus doesn't pray that they'll just be all right while he's gone. He gets specific. He longs to see his followers have his joy fulfilled in themselves. That's the ESV translation. Um, The NIV says that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. You've probably heard before that joy and happiness are not the same thing. And if you have, great. I am here to reinforce that idea. Um, The thing that helps me actually differentiate the two is that happiness depends on circumstances, but joy does not. I've heard it said that happiness happens to us, and joy is a choice purposefully made. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit and comes from God and not from ourselves. If you've ever met someone that is a joy-filled person, you know it. Someone once said, and there's actually even a children's song about this, which I did not know, um, and I won't sing it, but it goes, joy is the flag flown high from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. And I love that image. You know when you have met someone whose joy flag is flying. And I think that image helps us to see that Jesus isn't just praying that his father, that his followers had the full measure of his joy for their own sake but for the sake of those around them. If the flag of joy is flying, others will see it. And if they see that joy in us, they may also be drawn to Jesus. And that leads us to the world. Jesus does not ask the Father to remove his people from the world. He says so in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. But if we're real honest... Sometimes we do want to be taken out of the world. It's hard. And not just in the past year and a half, though that's definitely magnified the hard stuff. We see in scripture, it's actually been hard for a long time. And many of God's people, while in the midst of hardship, sometimes wanted to be taken out of the world. There's Moses in Numbers 11. He says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then we have Elijah in 1 Kings 
chapter 19, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Whole other story. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Girl was a little bit ticked off. Then... He was afraid, as he should be. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then, of course, you have Jonah which is a little bit of a different story because Jonah's supposed to give this message of um, forgiveness and redemption to the Ninevites, and he didn't want to because he didn't want them to be forgiven. He actually says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry that they were forgiven, by the way. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Y'all, if anybody tries to say the Old Testament is boring, child, please. So Jesus does not ask his followers to be taken out of the world. In one commentary, I actually read this. It said, the place of believers during this lifetime is not to withdraw from the world, but to remain in the world and to influence it continually for good as difficult as it may be. It is hard. And sometimes it might be tempting to remove ourselves from the world. Not necessarily via death, like those fellows from the Old Testament, but, but maybe. In my own life, I have struggled with such intense, deep depression at times that I have had suicidal thoughts and ideations, and I quite literally did not want to live in this world anymore. And I am certainly not the only one who's come to that place and had to find my way out. But some don't find their way out. And let me just say here, if you have had or are having thoughts like this, reach out, don't wait. Talk to me, talk to someone, talk to anyone. You are needed here. Please stay. It isn't always as intense, of course. It may just be that we're tempted to cut ourselves off. So many of us have experienced exhaustion and burnout, discouragement, feeling overwhelmed. And every person is going to have a different reaction to these feelings. But for me, I usually want to escape. Um, I want to cut myself off, and I don't want to put myself out there to be hurt anymore. I tend to isolate when I feel that way. But we are not meant to live a monastic lifestyle. We aren't called to cut ourselves off. We are rather called to live out in faith, live out our faith, I should say, in the midst of this world. And you've probably heard the saying, be in the world, but not of the world. And that exact phrase isn't in scripture, but the heart of that statement is true, and it's actually taken from verses 15 and 16 here. That I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We who believe in and follow Christ aren't of the world, meaning that we have an entirely different nature. 
Our heart desires and our goals have changed from what they would have been without Jesus. And we're meant to live out that lifestyle of imitating Christ right alongside everyone else in the world. That then brings us to sanctification. Jesus prays here that God will sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is no small thing. Justification, sanctification, a couple of big words, but here's the difference. Justification happens the moment you accept Christ as Savior. You are justified before God. You are declared righteous before him, and you don't have to do a thing but accept him. And it's done. It's a one and done kind of thing. But sanctification, on the other hand, is a lifelong process. It's that process of being purified and made holy as God is holy. It means refinement. It means having the impurities removed. When gold is refined, it's put into fire. When sugar is refined, it's put into boiling water. Basically, it stings at the very least. One commentary said this, sanctification involves both a relationship component, which means separation from, participating in, and being influenced by evil, and a moral component, growth in holiness and moral purity and attitudes, thoughts, and actions. We've probably all experienced some form of sanctification just over the last year and a half, or at least we've had opportunities for sanctification. I know I certainly have particularly around the idea of wanting to be understood and accepted by others. That's been an ongoing area of sanctification for me over the last decade. And I felt the sting of refinement in that area over the course of this global pandemic and the racial tension and all the polarized political things. Having to lay down my desires emptying my hands so I could cling more tightly to God. Jesus asked the Father to sanctify his followers in the truth. The truth is what then? Jesus says, your word is truth. The truth is made up of the entirety of scripture. And here's something interesting. The Greek word for truth here is not an adjective, which would make it mean your word is true. Instead, it is a noun which implies that God's word does not conform to some outside standard of truth, but instead it is truth itself. As one commentary said, it embodies truth and therefore is the standard of truth against which everything else must be tested and compared. As Jesus looked outward, he prayed for his disciples, his followers, that they would be filled with the joy that comes from him that they would live out that joy-filled life in the world, and that they would be sanctified, becoming more and more like him. So what then does that teach us about how we should pray? I don't think we'd be out of line in praying that God would fill us with the full measure of his joy. And then I think because we know how hard it is to live in this world while trying to follow Jesus, that God would help us to do just that that he would give us his strength and show us the path that he would have us take as we walk through this life. And then for our own sanctification, which requires surrender on our part. For me, that looks like daily and sometimes hourly and sometimes minute by minute, laying down, surrendering myself to Jesus, laying down my own desires so that I might have my hands open to be led forward by him. 
there's actually a worship song I've sung over and over, especially in the last year and a half or so, called Refiner. Um, Part of the lyrics say, I want to be tried by fire, purified. You take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. And my husband Josh would kid me that I shouldn't be singing or praying that if I didn't want it to happen. Uh, Because it did happen, of course. But the truth is, I did want it. I'm sure all of us want to be refined and to be sanctified. But what we don't usually want is the refining process, the burning away of our junk so that we can be made more like Christ. So maybe we pray also for fellow believers who can come alongside us and help us to have the courage to enter into that sanctification process. Jesus began by looking upward in prayer, then outward to his followers, and then finally he looked forward. If you'd look with me at verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You some actually say that this prayer, this whole John 17, is kind of gloomy. But New Testament scholar Leon Morris points out that it really isn't. He said, Jesus is looking forward to the cross, but in a mood of hope and joy and not one of despondency. This prayer marks the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, but it looks forward to the ongoing work, which would now be the responsibility first of the immediate disciples and then of those who would later believe through them. And Jesus prays for them all. I mentioned before, Jesus prayed this prayer not long before his betrayal and arrest. Jesus knew what was coming, that he would actually pray his prayer of agony in Gethsemane not long after this. But even knowing death was coming, he was praying for you and he was praying for me. The overwhelming theme of this part of the prayer, to me at least, is unity. Jesus could have prayed so many things for us, but he chose to pray for our unity. This doesn't mean we agree on all the things, and it doesn't mean we don't argue at all. It doesn't mean organizational unity, like for a company. Instead, it is a completely different way of living. As one commentator said, it is an all-encompassing relational reality that binds believers together with each other and their Lord a unity that can be achieved only through the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which that certainly seems easy and straightforward, right? Yeah, um, no, Christians throughout history, whether they're individuals or the church, have fallen short of this time and time and time again. And that's just reality. 
even when we are trying to live this out, we are going to fall short because we aren't perfect and we're not going to be until Jesus comes again. But even as it's done imperfectly, the seeking after this kind of unity, even when it's only partially realized, will reap rewards. I read somewhere that the result will always be deep joy, a persuasive witness to the world, and a display of God's glory. Yes, amen, that is a community that I want to be a part of, a community that seeks after Jesus, striving for unity in his name, realizing a deep joy that is a persuasive witness to the world. Don't we desire to display God's glory? I hope so. One theologian said the proclamation of the gospel apart from the unity of the church is a theological absurdity. You guys, unity is the evidence that our faith is real. When unity by Jesus's definition is present in the church, we answer Jesus's prayer. Unity though, it's another thing that requires us to surrender and really would then be part of our sanctification, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we actually see a more full picture of what unity looks like in the body of Christ in Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Not easy to do, but nothing truly worthwhile is, is it? As part of that unity we are called to, Jesus prays in verse 22 that the glory that God has given him would be given to us. Remember that Greek word for glory is doxa and recognizes the nature of God's godness. And when we glorify someone, we display their dignity, worth, importance, and fame. Jesus is asking that we get to receive that glory. And when we know Christ as Lord and Savior, we possess the glory of God within us. There is a weight and an importance to us, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. I read this about the glory Jesus is praying about here. It says, glory probably refers to the manifestation of the excellence of God's entire character in Jesus' life. Jesus has given this to all believers. His entire life revealed the glory of God, and therefore he imparted it to his followers, and Christians now reflect God's excellency in their own lives in imitation of Christ. If that doesn't set you back on your heels a little, I don't know what will. So then how does this instruct us in our prayers? Unity and glory. May we always be praying for unity. 
in the body of Christ. Not just that others would come around to our way of thinking so we can all just get along. That is a pretty fruitless endeavor in the end. Instead, unity by Jesus's definition. Unity that results in deep joy. A persuasive witness to the world and a display of God's glory. Let us continually be praying for that and praying that God would show us our role in living out unity in the body of believers. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in scripture, and it is jam-packed with truth for us to receive and with examples of how we ourselves should pray, upward, outward, and forward. It's a pretty great model for prayer, really. Upward, lifting our eyes to heaven and praising him. Outward, asking God to help us live in the world, but not be of the world. Praying for our own sanctification as we walk the path that he's laid out for us. Forward, begging God for unity in the body of Christ. Bringing deep joy. Glorifying God as we display his love to the world. Drawing others to him. Amen.